0: Section 20 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. East Coast Notes. Chapter 1. Some Bird Notes. Part 2. Wood Pigeons Food. Considering the continual slaughter of wood pigeons and the small number of offspring allotted to individual pairs, it is wonderful to me that not only does no sensible diminution become apparent, but, on the contrary, in Norfolk at least, the wood pigeon more than holds its own. Gilbert White, in his Letter 39, writing to Pennant, remarked on its movements in large flocks reaching in strings for a mile together as they went out in a morning to feed. This was before the beach and woods were so much destroyed, and does not seem definitely to point to migratory flocks, although by his query, they leave us early in the spring, where do they breed? He undoubtedly suggests that migrants from abroad had something to do with these marked movements. That immense numbers of wood pigeons do come to us in early winter from oversea is an established fact. The food devoured by numbers of pigeons must be immense, judging by what I have found in their crops. I have never taken the trouble to count the numbers of acorns found in them, but I have seen them taken out by the handful, and I have felt huge quantities of them when examining birds on a game-dealer's stall. In February 1906, I wrote to the Eastern Daily Press as follows, Sir, I have been very much struck by the great numbers of woodpigeons that have been brought during the winter saturday after saturday to yarmouth market which would seem to suggest a rather unusual abundance locally they are mostly a very indifferently marked lot of birds in immature plumage and i think a more unsophisticated and less suspicious race than our own i have heard of some large flocks coming in from the continent arriving a few miles to the northward, but have not, as in some seasons, any record of flights passing in the immediate neighbourhood. In some years, large flocks have cast a big shadow as they crossed. Great numbers are reported in various parts of the country, notably in Devon and Bedfordshire. In parts of the latter, county farmers are grumbling at the havoc they are making on the young crops. Are they in any way misbehaving themselves in Norfolk? An interesting note in this week's Countryside from a gamekeeper makes reference to a strange epidemic affecting them in the woods in the south. They are being picked up dead in extraordinary good plight. Signed, John Nolittle. The following reply appeared in answer to my note. Sir, John Nolittle, in his letter of your Friday's issue, seems just now keen on the wood pigeon. In BBS's Farm Notes of Saturday the 4th is an article on the same bird and its habits. May I ask you for our friend John's information to give an extract from the same as below? I learn in the district that the visitors, as well as the homebreds, have a strong partiality for the clover lays, and in taking their meal, are careful to sample the crowns first. Yours truly, Mid-Norfolk. Sir. My attention was recently called to a wild pigeon which had just been shot. In falling, this bird burst its crop and disclosed what the shooter described as a dustpanful of the hearts of young clover plants. Multiply this dustpanful by the hundreds of birds which have been recently visiting our new lays, and some idea can be formed of the damage done by these pests. We see our clover lays looking well in the autumn, but we find no clover in the spring, and we accuse the eelworms, which attack the roots of clover plants of doing the damage, but perhaps the pigeons have done it after all. Signed, BBS. My own notes about that period are as follow. January the 27th. Many wood pigeons in the market again today. In a note from Woburn, MB says, we have thousands and they are a great grievance to the farmer. I do not understand the reason of their increase. Ditto of the stock dove. February the 10th. A considerable number of wood pigeons in market today. I felt the crops of some and found them full of soft green food. The country folk tell me they are busy on the younger crops. Some stock doves also in the market. February the thirteenth. Examined a lot in a poulterer's; all had empty crops. Evidently they had been shot early in the day. Examining one in the market, I found its crop filled with clover leaves. Wood pigeons are most saleable birds in our market and are disposed of at sixpence and eightpence each, forming a not unremunerative item to those who sometimes expose large bunches of them for sale. I certainly do not see much for the East Norfolk garden farmer to complain of. If added to this substantial figure, he gets some interesting and even exciting sport thrown in. A fat, clover-fed pigeon is by no means bad eating. Quails in East Anglia The Daily Chronicle of October 19th, 1905, was responsible for the following par. A quail has been shot by Sub-Lieutenant H.R. Sawbridge, Royal Navy, at Lopham Fen. It is over 50 years since the last specimen was seen in the eastern counties. Newspaper folks, as a rule, are peculiarly partial to that last 50 years, and the orthodox so many feet across the wings from tip to tip, when describing rare or curious birds seen or shot. I felt called upon to answer the statement, and wrote as follows. Sir, in your interesting news in few lines, you make reference to a quail shot at Lopham Fen as the last seen in the eastern counties for fifty years allow me to state that several bevies of quails nested in the broad district in 1870 and my two latest local records are female shot at scratby september the 13th 1893 and two others near yarmouth in november 1899 this species which was regarded by the late sir james paget as not uncommon in 1834, is rare now, as it is in this country generally. And Mr J. H. Gurney, in the Norfolk and Norwich naturalist transactions, considers the present scarcity is due more to the captures which annually take place in the south of Europe than to any agricultural changes in Norfolk. Signed, A. H. P. Other letters appeared, two of which are as follow. GTD of Wimborne wrote, About the year 1874, I found on my shooting land a quail's nest with 19 eggs. These were reared, and in the 80s, quails came regularly to breed on my estate in Norfolk every summer. One was seen last week in Dorset. My father, wrote WGB, has frequently shot quails, particularly at Martham in Norfolk. In fact, we have one stuffed, which was killed not a great while ago. To the Eastern Daily Press, in which the paragraph from the Daily Chronicle also appeared, Major W.S. Dodds wrote, Sir apropos of the paragraph in today's press, stating that the quail shot at Lopham Fen was the first seen in the eastern counties for over 50 years. Let me refer you to your issue of May 1903, Natural History Notes by T.E. Gunn, who records the fact not only of a quail being shot in the previous September, but also of finding of its nest containing fifteen eggs. French Partridges and Sparrows In my notebook for 1905, I have the following entry. April the 19th, about forty of these birds, French partridges, running about on the South Deans, not far from the harbour mouth. I mentioned this fact to Mr. J. H. Gurney, who wrote, To my mind, the chief argument against partridges found on the beach being migrants is that, among the many hundreds of wings received from the East Coast lightships and lighthouses, there has never been a partridges' wing, nor has there ever been a house sparrow's wing, another species thought by some to migrate. With regard to the sparrow, I myself am confident that it does shift its quarters on occasion. I once saw and heard one, which is sufficiently convincing to anyone who knows its note, come in straight from the sea with other small Fringalidae, and on October the 9, 1906, I saw several arrive. My note for that date reads as follows. The influx of small birds this morning made the North Deans quite interesting. At six o'clock I was at the third gate watching the incoming migrants. These birds struck the coast probably miles to the northward and led along the nearest east fringe of vegetation Bordering the sea, I noticed every five or ten minutes, sometimes oftener, flocks of from six to thirty birds. These included greenfinches, linnets, red poles, twites, and in one instance, in company with twites, common sparrows. The sparrow is always chatty on migration, and this morning he was as merry as ever. A few bunches of larks came from sea, flying northeast to southwest. It was a typical migration morning. Wind southwest by south at six o'clock, veering to south southeast by seven o'clock. In December 1906, I made inquiries of one or two lightship men respecting the coming aboard of partridges and sparrows. A mate, an intelligent man, was quite positive that on three occasions French partridges came aboard, and they were secured and eaten. The English partridge he had never seen. This was on board the cockle lightship. The house sparrow was quite a familiar winter visitant, coming with other small birds, and he knew it as quite distinct from the tree sparrow. When he was stationed on the St. Nicholas lightship, a cock-pheasant once alighted on board, but the crew failed to capture him. He got away and disappointed them. Pelican On the afternoon of July the 21st, 1906, Fred Clark, one of the Bradeners, hailed me just as I had reached my houseboat to spend the night there and, hastening to his location, I found him much excited over the advent of a pelican, and there, bunched up on the edge of Duffel's drain, with his head drawn into his shoulders and his pouch full of flounders, sat the ungainly bird, sleeping off the effects of a full stomach. Early next morning, I sent my small son Gilbert with his binoculars to have a good look at him. He was in the same spot, and was busy preening his feathers and shaking his wings. Not far from him stood a spoonbill. The pelican shortly after lifted himself a wing and went direct east. I saw by a London paper shortly after that a pelican, undoubtedly the same individual, was seen at Whitstable. Mr J. H. Gurney, writing me on October the 12th, says, It seems that when the pelican left Norfolk last July, it went to Whitstable Flats at the mouth of the Thames, where it has been through the greater part of August and September. I was very loath to give this bird a place in my local list, well knowing that many of them are kept in captivity. But having regard to the long-continued prevalence of the south, Southwest and southeast winds during this phenomenally hot summer, I now consider it quite possible that this bird may have visited us from southern Europe. "'Still more strongly am I impressed with the likelihood of this, "'seeing that, notwithstanding inquiries set afoot by Mr. Gurney, "'myself and probably others, no escape could be traced. "'Besides, a flamingo appeared in Suffolk at about the same time, "'and other rare birds, glossy ibises and red-crested whistling ducks, for instance,' were recorded and obtained. An interesting note subsequently appeared in the zoologist of november nineteen oh six, referring to the Pelican Pelicanus Onocretalis, and stating that late in October it took up its night quarters in the open marshes near the shore, some distance from the town of Whitstable and when not engaged in sea-fishing, roamed over the pastures, and is often seen resting on the ground among the sheep at a distance of over a mile inland. The pastures are intersected with ditches and stream-dykes which afford the pelican food, but its almost daily habit has been to go to the shore on a fishing excursion when the tide is well out. Lately its visits to the sea have been less frequent, owing probably to the many attempts which have been made to shoot or capture it. The bird is strong on the wing. A suggestion was made that it may have escaped from a ship, but its plumage, when I saw it, as early as July, did not exhibit the least appearance that would lead one to conclude this to have been the case. A pelican cooped aboard ship would, in a very short time, show traces of prison life. Hooded Crows and Rats The Hooded Crow, as far as his behaviour in Norfolk is concerned, is by no means open to grave censure, for there is invariably enough carrion to be found on the shores of our rivers and beaches to supply his needs, and he is not tempted to resort to those predacious habits which are said to characterize him in some localities. The worst sins I have known him commit have been laid to his charge by and gunners who have occasionally complained of his stealing a wounded widgeon or not from under their very guns in this neighborhood. He is a most industrious and indefatigable scavenger, picking up many unconsidered trifles in the shape of stranded birds, putrid fish and other carrion. On the warrens he considers dead rabbits his lawful prey, and I have never heard anyone dispute his right to them. I reported to the Eastern Daily Press in November 1905 the fact that I had discovered him busily employed at the harbour mouth skinning some dead dogfishes, first digging out the eyes, then disembowelling them, and then turning them inside out as expertly as a fish hawker "'turns out weavers and gurnards "'for the housewife surrounding his handbarrow "'with waiting plates. "'I finish my note by asking if any reader "'had ever detected Master Crow skinning a rabbit. "'The following day, a letter appeared "'signed by Anopheles, "'who had known the bird to operate on rats. "'He wrote, "'Sir, The thirst of your correspondent, John Nolittle, would seem to be insatiable when facts relating to natural history are under discussion. I can only answer him indirectly by reference to the treatment of rats. On a frosty December night last year, I was one of a party who enjoyed an excellent evening sport between nine and eleven, Ratting around some corn stacks, as is our custom when on such expeditions, for my friends and I often indulge in this sport during the winter months. We were armed with sticks, bicycle lamps, and a couple of keen dogs, the sticks to stir the rats out of the stacks, and the lamps to keep them in view of the dogs after they have jumped down onto the ground. Our kill on this occasion numbered between twenty and thirty rats, and these were left on the ground around the stacks. About three days afterwards, I was walking past these same stacks and was surprised to find some score or more hoodies busily engaged on the ground. I say surprised because the Danish crow is not very common in the district referred to about ten miles from Norwich. The object of their search was soon apparent, for I found, with the exception of their skins, little remained of our rats of the previous evening. They were lying on the ground as we had left them, beautifully cleaned, though turned inside out, but the skins otherwise uninjured, and it was evident, from some of the carcass still remaining, that the process of evisceration was commenced by the crows at the tail end of the rats. It is probable that Hoodie would tackle a dead rabbit in a similar manner. Rats continued. Anopheles went on to discourse further on rats, remarking, although justly attributed a plague to the farmer in this eastern part of England, On the small estate referred to above, several thousands are killed annually by the keeper. It would seem that the common brown rat, Moose decumanus, is not nearly so common in some other parts of the country. For example, a friend from Westmoreland told me the other day that a rat in his county might almost be reckoned a Rara Avis. It was quite an exceptional thing to meet with one. The question of food supply probably determines its distribution, and although omnivorous, the adoption of the four-course shift in this county would tend to provide him with a varied and plentiful diet at all seasons of the year. I lived for some months in Lancashire, an adjoining county, and found the part I resided in swarming with the hated rodent. At P. Gardens, the slopes of the lake were riddled with their burrows, and they fed boldly with the waterfowl at all hours of the day. They perforated the lawn in front of the gardener's house, until it was like an overcrowded rabbit burrow. They undermined the house itself, they swarmed my monkey house at night and cleared away all that the monkeys could not stow away at supper time. They killed foreign birds wholesale, not scrupling to devour a sick cockatoo. The only other place I ever saw so rat infested was the slaughter yard where, in 1890, they killed the horses for the carnivorous animals in de-zoological gardens. The remnants of the carcasses used then to be allowed to lie out on the concreted area to be carted away by the knacker when he came to do the next day's killing. There was little left but bare bones for him to take back with him. It seemed that a previous superintendent had been a greater admirer of rat-killing dogs than his more legitimate charges, and so the brutes were allowed a very free reign as regards their population question. I went one or two nights with a lantern to see the gathering of the clans, and I confess I never saw anything in the rat-line to equal it. The rats shot away on my coming in all directions, in a manner that I can only describe as like sparks flying from the seething hot iron on an anvil at the first heavy blow. The super of my time started his reign by issuing an edict against the rats, and a stone shed with rat proof doors was completed, and may still remain, and all the horses killed were at once properly flensed, and the beef hung. The rats soon began to complain of a famine, and the first morning after the new regime had commenced, I noticed that the bottom of the meat-house doors showed marks of many a score hungry rats' teeth. I set two large French wire traps, baited with maize that night, against the doors, and in the morning, discovered them crammed full of struggling rats. If my memory serves me rightly, I captured 73 rats the first two nights, and for some nights after found them still as eager to enter. I hope the good work then begun has been since carried on, and that the rats are now rare in D Zoo. I myself have never observed a rat afloat on Braden on a piece of ice, but I can quite credit reports which have come to me of these creatures, pressed for food in hard winters, venturing onto the ice at night for wounded fowl, and being caught in the break-up of the ice-field, which, in the lower reaches, takes place suddenly at the fall of the tide. The poor things, to be pitied in their distress, have been in sorry plight, and had a rough time of it in more ways than one when being born seawards. Curious Nesting Sites On July 1st, 1897, I inserted the following note in the Eastern Daily Press. Sir, Bird's nests are, although I am no oologist myself, of much interest to me, inasmuch as one sees in their construction, placement and environment the strange workings of bird instinct, which, in many cases, has been so carried out that reason, or something very little removed from it, has been added to the other quality. The predilection nowadays shown by house martins for country residence in preference to town life is a noticeable feature. We now have in Yarmouth scarcely a martin's nest, owing to the bullying of sparrows, etc. But in an adjoining village, seven nests, new to me, are this year affixed to one house front. Not far from Kester, some swallows have been nesting annually for some years in a tea saucer, which has been repeatedly taken down from a shelf for inspection. In the hospital school grounds, just above the boys' heads, is a knot hole in an old tree. Into the cavity wriggled a pair of starlings, and by some means made it conveniently comfortable to raise a family. A pair of swallows are building for the third season in the boys' lavatory within easy reach of the smallest urchin. At Caister, a pair of English and a pair of red-legged partridges are nesting amicably within a very short distance of each other. Signed, John Nolittle. In reply to this, WGC wrote as follows. Sir, supplementing the curious nesting places of swallows published in your columns, I would mention the nest to be found beneath Oldby Bridge, over the river, continually subject to the rattling and rolling of the train's above head. There is generally a nest in the letterbox of the ink factory at Barsham, and for many years a blue jimmy, or blue tit, Use the village wall box at Kilverston for purposes of nidification. Two or three years ago a brood of these birds was safely reared in a crack in an axle of one of the staunches of the little ooze. At the same time there were eight youngsters in a nest built in a crack between two bricks from which the mortar had been weathered away in a wall in Thetford. It certainly was a mystery how the plump little parent tits squeezed in. Only this year, a friend found a blue tits nest in a hollow gatepost, and with a zeal which I thought mistaken, he slit the post down the middle until the nest was reached. In spite of this, the parent bird refused to leave the eggs, which were on the point of being hatched allowing herself to be lifted off the nest without any sign of fear. A still more curious instance of the nesting of the blue tit has been published in the Transactions of the Norfolk and Norwich Naturalist Society, wherein it is recorded that about 1819, a man named Camplin climbed a gibbet in the parish of Wareham, upon which had been executed a person named Bennett for the murder of his master, John Philly, the trial taking place at Thetford. In the head of the skeleton, a blue tit had built its nest, and the terrified family of nine or ten flew out on being disturbed. In the gallows pits, Thetford, criminals were formerly interred, Now the pits are used for depositing rubbish. Amongst the miscellaneous collection of kettles to be found there, a robin generally builds its nest year by year. In a railway bridge at Santon, Norfolk, six bricks had been left out of the bridge, three on either side. Of the six holes, five were tenanted by starlings a few weeks ago. A piece of the outer bark of a pine tree had been blown into the middle of a hawthorn, the concave side being uppermost. In this, a blackbird built its nest, the run of the nest being level with the edge of the bark on either side. Several years ago, Mr. F. Norgate found a nest on Santon Warren which contained eight teals or ducks and several pheasants' eggs. A piece of oak bark had become fixed on the crutch of a beech tree about three feet from the ground and a nightjar had chosen it whereon to deposit its two eggs rather than on the ground. Other notes were forthcoming proving that the two species of partridge not infrequently occupied the same nest. End of section 20